Today's scripture reading is found in Luke 7, verses 36 to 15. Please stand. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the reading will also be on the screen behind me. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered the house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Can you be seated? Well, again, good morning. If you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're not preaching through a specific book in the Bible. Rather, we are take, we've taken the last 11 weeks uh, to walk through um, certain parables of Jesus. And we've called this the uh, Portraits of the Kingdom, and we have another portrait. Every week, we've had an artist from our church community uh, paint a painting or do an artistic rendering uh, around the parable that, that, that we're teaching. And uh, we have Dave Beller's painting down here this morning. Hope that you uh, come and interact with it. It's a beautiful painting. Um, and, and if I'm not a visual artist like this, so uh, for me to explain it is probably very poor. Just come down and enjoy it, and uh, hopefully you'll run into a, a visual artist down here, and they'll be able to explain uh, what's going on there with the different mediums. But I've just been, this is actually set in our office uh, for this past week, a little over a week actually. So in writing the parable and being able to see the art has been really uh, a gift for me. But today does conclude uh, our series on, on the parables, Portraits of the Kingdom. Uh, all right, let's get to the teaching. Uh, you want to keep your Bible open to Luke chapter 7. We'll be in verses 36 through 50, as Vivian read. Um, and we'll just walk through that. And we're going to let this narrative serve, uh, serve as, as kind of our outline as well. I was reminded this week of a story uh, that I had read uh, out of a Presbyterian church. Um, 
And uh, at this particular Presbyterian church, uh, a single mother uh, brought a child to be uh, baptized, an infant to be baptized. And uh, the church baptized the infant uh, for the single mom. And the pastor is telling the story, and he, he received uh, some or quite a bit of backlash for uh, baptizing this infant of this single mother. And people were uh, writing into him and, and talking to him about how could, how could you do this in public in front of our church? How could, how could our church uh, uh, baptize the, the infant of a, of a single mother? Aren't we uh, promoting uh, you know, uh, sex out of wedlock and all, all of these different things? And, and uh, he just listened to the feedback and listened to the feedback. And uh, the problem is um, they were missing the backstory. The backstory with, with this mother is that she became pregnant uh, prior to receiving Christ as, as her Savior. You see, a Christian community, when she became pregnant, uh, came around her and began to love her and continued to share the gospel, which she received. Um, choosing to keep the child, um, she chose to uh, come before the church after she received Christ, wanted to raise the child in the church, and wanted nothing more than this child to be dedicated to the Lord, and so saw fit for it to be baptized in front of this church. And uh, it's this really beautiful story. The backstory is, is incredible. Those people who wrote in, those people who uh, talked to the pastor, right, they had no idea of what was really going on in this woman's life. And some of you, uh, you come in maybe to a context like this, a church context like this, and maybe that's been your experience with the church, where you have um, experienced the devastating reality of judgmentalism. And one of the scariest places I think a community of faith or a person of faith, individually or corporately, can be is when we lose the explosive reality of God's grace, when we lose the sense of awe of God's beauty and his grace and his mercy. When we jump to rash conclusions, when we, when we don't find out the rest of the story or the backstory, when we don't seek to understand the way of love and the way of mercy and the way of grace and what's really going on in someone's life. You see, many Christians seem totally devoid of one thing that is supposed to characterize our experience with God. That's the word Grace. Grace is what saves us as Christians. Grace is what sustains us. Grace is what fuels us and motivates us, what secures our future. It's grace. We have been saved by grace through faith, right? That's what Ephesians tells us. And it's by faith that we now have access into this grace that we stand. From start to finish, our walk as Christians, as Christ followers, is one of grace, beautiful, amazing grace. And we run a terrible risk when we lose the sense and the awe of just how amazing and beautiful the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ truly is. Today's story and the parable within the context of the story of Luke 7 is the result of what happens when you lose the sense of grace. And so let's walk through this story verse by verse. Verse 36 gives us the setting It says this, one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, why would a Pharisee ask Jesus over to his house? Because at this point in Luke chapter 7, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, by and large, at Jesus' day, don't really care for him. 
They don't really like him. They don't like his growing popularity. Why in the world would the Pharisee ask Jesus over to his house in such an intimate setting? Well, you have to understand that in this day and age, in a community like this where the scene would have happened, a meal was a public spectacle at the Pharisee's house. So they would have gathered uh, popular figures, popular teachers, and they would have brought them in, and they would have, they would have uh, asked them questions. They would have begun maybe theological dialogue, things like that. It would have been something that would have been out in the open. It would have been in, in public air. So in fact, the community would have gathered around the table, would have been peering in. And so let me tell you, these Pharisees were gathering Jesus there for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to humiliate him in public. That was to put him to open shame. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Because of the rest of the, the chapters. Verse 44 through 46 tell about the treatment of Jesus at this host's house. How he was anything but hosted as a guest of honor. And what I've labeled this, this verse or this section is drawing close for all the wrong reasons. These religious elites were there wanting to mock Jesus. They hated that this was the rabbi who was gaining popularity. This was the teacher gaining popularity. And they hated, as Luke chapter 5 tells us, they hated most of all, initially in Jesus' ministry, that he drew close to sinners. That he would eat with tax collectors. People not like them. That's Luke 5.30 if you want to look that up. Drawing close to Jesus for the wrong reasons. They weren't bringing him in to show him hospitality. They weren't bringing him in to, 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 to be truly curious about what he was truly about. They were bringing him there to embarrass him. And I want to pause here um, because we can be like, shame you Pharisees. Yeah, Pharisees. Are we ever guilty of drawing near to Jesus for the wrong reasons? Seeking Jesus out for the wrong reasons? Come on, of course we are. Right? Maybe because we believe that in Jesus we'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Is that what Jesus promises? Maybe we draw near to Jesus because, okay, then, that, then that's going to fix my problem. Well, that's drawing near to Jesus because he's a commodity. Or we treat Jesus like a genie in the bottle, Right? I need to get my wishes close enough to him so that they might be granted. Or we draw near for therapy. It just makes me feel better. No, let me tell you that proximity to Jesus does not mean intimacy with Jesus. We've said that before in this series, that proximity to Jesus does not mean intimacy with Jesus. The Pharisees had a lot of proximity, literal proximity to Jesus, but they were drawing near to him for the wrong reasons. To embarrass him, to put him to shame, to ridicule him, to pin him, to trap him, to catch him in his, his words or his teachings that they might indict him and go, blasphemy! You see, we draw near to Jesus, make no mistake about it, to get Jesus, to get the person and work of Christ, to get God himself. That's why we draw near to him. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But in this same scene, we don't just see a drawing near for the wrong reasons. We see a drawing near for the right reason. And this woman is the one who draws near to Jesus for the right reason. Look in verse 37 through 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, and what it means by that, what Luke is doing here in his teaching by saying who was a sinner, 
It's a very specific thing. She was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. So she, a woman from the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, because this is a public thing, this is where the community would know, right? What does she do? She brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Okay, so she, she hears that Jesus is gathering. Get, get in this mindset. She hears that Jesus is going to be at the Pharisee's house. What does she do? She grabs the most expensive or valuable thing she possibly owns, and she goes, I'm going to see him. I'm going to draw near to him with the most expensive thing to give to him, to anoint him, right? That, that's her intent, all right? And standing behind him, at his feet, okay, so she's observing what's going on with the Pharisees and with Jesus in his treatment. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped him with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This is drawing near to Jesus for the right reason. Now, I'm not going to let you know the reason quite yet. I want you to begin to think about that. What do you think the reason is that she begins to, to fall at Jesus' feet and wipe his feet with her tears and her hair? Why, why is that? I'm not going to let you know quite yet. But this scene would have been outrageous to those watching, to be honest. A prostitute coming to the table of a guest at a Pharisee's house. And again, this is a community of people peering into this going, what is happening? Can you imagine Simon the host? This is his house. He's like, oh man. He's like, but you know, honestly, this might really prove Jesus to be a fraud. Verse 39 shows Simon's thinking. Look at it. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he, sa he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So here's Simon's thinking, the religious leader. His, his thinking is this. If Jesus were a prophet, if he really knew, he would know people's character. Right? This is his reasoning. If Jesus knew this woman was a sinner, he would have nothing to do with her and definitely wouldn't let her touch him. Why? Because she's unclean. You see, the word Pharisee means separate. So here's how the Pharisees maintained their holiness by being separate from those things that were unclean. And a prostitute, a known sinner in the city, being allowed to touch Jesus, Jesus allowing her to touch him. His conclusion is this. Since Jesus has accepted this woman, he either A, doesn't know her character, right? Which is quite obvious, based upon how she's known in the city, how she's dressed, how her hair comes down to wipe his feet. And since Jesus do doesn't know this woman is a sinner, he can't be a prophet, right? He can't possibly be a prophet. And since Jesus is not a prophet, guess what we get to do? We can reject him and his message and his ministry. And what was Jesus' message from day one when he began preaching? I came to seek and save the lost You see, Simon was mistaken about three different people in this text. The woman, Jesus, and himself. Verse 40, let's keep going. This is, and I love Luke. I just love this as a literary piece. A literary piece, this is incredible. So we just heard, we just heard about Simon thinking in verse 40. Remember, he's like, this guy can't be a prophet. 
This guy cannot be a prophet. In verse 40, look what happened. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said to him, say it, teacher. Okay, so get this. Like, if this doesn't clue Simon in, like, he's more than just a prophet because Jesus is about to, like, read his mind in his mail. A certain, and here's where we get the parable, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Jesus tells this simple, almost childlike parable to this really intellectual Pharisee. It's probably like the Pharisee's like, what's going on here? And notice Simon answers back to him, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Forgiven much, love much. Forgiven little, love little. And Jesus uses what's next in the teaching or in this section of scripture to illuminate the parable. He says, Simon, I am about to illuminate for you how you have miscalculated this whole situation. And this is verse, 47, 40, verse 44 through 47, excuse me. He said, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus goes, let me tell you, host Simon, Pharisee Simon, religious leader Simon, who is actually hosted me at this table. It's not you. It's this sinner. It's this prostitute. She is the one who has loved me. And her sins are forgiven. You see, this is the section of scripture where we know now how these people and why these people were asking Jesus to gather at their table. And it wasn't with a pure motive. It wasn't with a pure intent. It was to embarrass him. It was to shame him. It was to humiliate him in front of the public. Now here's where the ESV, that's the standard, that's the version of the Bible we use here. The ESV does a little bit of a difference on translation than I would like. And some of your Bibles actually get it, what I think is more correct in the original language of the Greek. And I want to show you that translation of verse 47. Because verse 47 is where the author actually like surprises us all. Right? Because I didn't tell you the motive of why she was wetting Jesus' with her, wetting Jesus's feet with her tears or with her hair or with her, her alabaster flask of oil. Because we have to understand, verse 47, the original audience would have been like, wait, what? Here's what it says. For this reason, this is in the NASB translation. NIV has the same and most other translations say it like this. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Wait a minute. That's past tense. So in the Greek, what this looks like in the actual text is that Jesus is pointing back to a prior event that has occurred with this woman. So hold on. So at some point, and this is why this is key to understand this whole passage and including this parable, that at some point, this woman, this prostitute, this sinner in the city, 
heard the message of the gospel from Jesus Christ, that his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness goes out to sinners like her, and she has trusted in that grace and in that mercy and in that forgiveness. At some point prior to this, she has heard the message of the gospel. Kenneth Bailey, who is a a scholar, wrote actually on this particular passage, this is what he says. He says, the story assumes that before the drama opens, the woman had heard Jesus proclaiming his message of grace for sinners. The entire account makes no sense without this assumption. There is no doubt the woman has has been deeply moved by the message and believed and repented and was anticipating a chance to make visible her thanks to Christ and to confirm forgiveness for her sins and the salvation of herself. Does that make sense? So go all the way back to the beginning when she's getting ready at her house, if she has a house, right? And she's going, I've been forgiven. This Savior saves people like me. What can I bring? I don't have anything. Oh, I do have something of value. I have this ointment. I'm going to bring. I know where he's going to be. He's going to be at the Pharisee's house, and I'm going to anoint him with the most valuable and precious thing I have. So get this picture now. She rolls up on the scene, and what's happening to her Savior? He's being humiliated. His feet aren't washed. He's not greeted. He's not kissed. All of those things that were customary to honor a guest in their house is not happening to their Savior. And this woman sees it. And her tears aren't just tears of gratefulness because of her forgiveness. Her tears are tears that her Savior is being humiliated. And she goes, I'm not going to tolerate it. I've been forgiven much. And so she goes to him risking social, risking all kinds of things in her life. And she brings that bottle and anoints Jesus. She wipes. Listen, the reason, if she would have come, listen to me, if she would have come going, I'm going to wash his feet. Don't you think she would have brought a basin and a towel? What did she have though? Her hair. And letting down her hair, which was a risque move. Again, this was a she washes and she wipes his feet and anoints his feet. And she's going, listen, I will enter into the suffering with you. That's how much love, that's how much thankfulness I have for the grace that I have received. You see, if you misinterpret this text, you may think that Jesus is going, man, this woman showed a lot of love. Therefore, Jesus is like, because you showed me a lot of love, I'm going to forgive you. No, she's come already experiencing the grace and mercy of Jesus. And this scene is actually a response from her great forgiveness. And the Pharisee is missing it. He misses it. And Jesus uses this picture of this parable. Simon, tell me, who do you think would love more? The one who's been forgiven this massive debt or this one who's been forgiven a little? And he uses that little forgiveness. There's no such thing, right? Like, don't, don't be mistaken to think that this parable or the point of this parable is that this woman is a great sinner and, and Simon is a little sinner. No, the point is not that, excuse me, the point is that Simon is a sinner just like this woman. And the only difference is that he doesn't realize it. And ironically, this woman, she has a leg up on him because she realizes her sinfulness, and he doesn't. That Simon, over the years, has learned to cloak his sinfulness better than she has. 
to behave in a more socially acceptable way. But his heart has the same sickness as hers. But she sees it, and he doesn't. And I want to pause here and warn us. Warn us about receiving acceptable sins or respectable sins. There's a, there's a book by uh, Jerry Bridges. Actually, my mom gave me a book called Respectable Sins. Um, if your mom loves you, she gives you a book called Respectable Sins, right? Um, and I've been slowly making my way through this book because it has been doing massive heart surgery on me. Um, and how easily we get caught up in these big societal sins, but yet miss the small, respectable sins in our heart. And that's how we dismiss them. Jesus maybe puts it another way about being judging about the speck in someone else's eye and missing the log in your own. I actually this morning uh, printed the table of contents from that book. And these sins that Bridges lists as respectable sins, which is said tongue-in-cheek, by the way. That's not a thing, okay? Or ungodliness. Anxiety and frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, and irritability. I can't even say that one. Anger, the weeds of anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, and related sins, sins of the tongue, worldliness. Sins that we just gloss over. Sins that we call respectable and don't deal with because of our preoccupation with major sins typically happening in someone else's life. I don't know about you, but my Bible, um, which these are man-made so I can criticize them, um, they put those, those headings above the verses. Look down. Does your Bible say that? Mine says, um, a sinful woman forgiven. I don't really like that. Like, if I, if I were redoing that again, I can do man-made, save your emails, okay? Um, Maybe a forgiven woman worships. Maybe a sinful man stays in his sin. Maybe the wordless worship of a beautiful worshiper. I don't know. You see, make no mistake about it. Jesus is not accommodating this woman's sin. He's not going, I've forgiven you. Grace. You're covered. Go live however you want. And this is where culture has got it wrong, both church culture and culture in general, is that we believe that there are only two options when it comes to dealing with sin. Is it's alienation or acceptance? Alienation or acceptance. And Jesus shows us that there is actually a third way, is that he was embodied. He embodied what? It says it in your word. He embodied truth and Say it, grace. Truth and grace. And that is what love expressed looks like. It doesn't look like cowering from the truth, but it also looks like us understanding the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that must go out from his people. It's not alienation and it's not acceptance. It's truth and grace together. 
You see, Jesus, what he's doing here for the Pharisees and anybody that will peer in and watch, he's clarifying this is the Pharisees were trying to stay separate. He's going, listen, you have mistaken, you forgot that my cleanliness doesn't, it can't be impeded by your uncleanliness. My cleanliness goes out and reaches out to your uncleanliness. I make things clean. Jesus says, you don't make me unclean. And verse 49 is really what got him frustrated, 48 and 49. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Again, same tense from the prior verse in 47. He goes, hey, look at me. Look me in the eye. Nobody else has looked you in the eye. Your sins have been forgiven. You're set free. Your shame, your guilt, your past, it is covered, Jesus says. And then in verse 49, that's when they begin to look at each other around the table. And it's now not that he's just been touched by a woman like that, okay? It's, it's, it's like, wait a minute. Who says, who can say to someone else, their sins are forgiven? And this is where I just, again, love the literary piece of this in Luke. Um, it's like Simon was trying to figure out if Jesus was a prophet. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah. That's cute. I am a prophet, but I'm not just a prophet. I'm God. And so I have the power to look at this woman and say, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 50, he gives her the command, go in peace. And again, not knocking our translation, I think it's very good. The Greek is this, go into shalom. What Jesus is telling this woman to do is something she has never been able to do in her life is now to walk into peace. Walk into wholeness. Walk into true rest. Walk into true life. Walk into true living. Listen, your old is gone. The new has come. Walk into shalom. And listen, that is what Jesus offers to anyone by his grace. To walk into his shalom. And so these are the last, I want to make these three points very quickly and clearly um, around this text in this parable. The first one is this, that Jesus is never more approachable than he is to sinners. Praise be to God, right? You see, one of the most beautiful parts of Jesus' life is how safe sinners felt around him. And again, not because he accommodated them in their sin but because of how loving he was. How he peered into their heart and knew exactly what was going on. I guess we could say that maybe the safest place in the universe for a sinner like you and me is to be actually completely exposed in the presence of Jesus. Because that when we come in full exposure to Jesus, repentant, confessing our sin before him, he will receive us and forgives us. If like Simon, <laughs> we're like, what sin? If we keep it covered, you will not be received by Jesus. You'll be left to your own. You see, everything in our flesh tells us to hide, to hide our sin, to put on a mask, to live the facade life. This goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis after the fall, right? Genesis chapter three in Adam and Eve. And what's the question from God? 
where are you? What are they doing? God didn't ask where are you because he can't see them. He asks because he wants them to know that their tendency now after the fall is to what? Shrink away from God. To hide. So Jesus is never more approachable than he is to sinners. The second thing is this. Jesus is never more unapproachable than he is to the religious and self-sufficient. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this. He says, the gospel is open to all. The most respectable sinner has no more claim on it than the worst. You see, but if we come or try to come with all of our trappings, and listen, this was the meal with these Pharisees, all of the, the dressed up, the pomp and circumstance, hiding, showing their cleanliness, showing their holiness, showing how worthy they were, how self-sufficient they were before God, how God should look down and go, I am so well pleased with you because of your behavior. We cannot approach God. I love Tim Keller, what he says about grace. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. You hear that? Grace is not opposed to effort. Paul talks a lot about that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Walk in this manner, right? That's not earning, that's effort, right? We as Christians believe in grace-driven effort. However, what we wholeheartedly believe is, well, it's not our effort that earns us grace. It's the unmerited favor of God in and through Jesus Christ given to us. That's grace. And lastly, you guys can come up as we get ready to take communion, that worship is the only appropriate response to grace. Worship is the only appropriate response to grace. I love what one commentator says on this, that, that what is displayed in this woman at Jesus' feet is white, hot worship that enters into the space of Jesus, that she is willing to be put to shame, to enter into his humiliation. That's worship. Willing to give everything, the sum total of our life. Like this is, read Romans 12 this week, particularly the first two verses, Right? This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 where it says, let let your bodies be what? A living sacrifice. That's your worship unto God. Does that just mean your physical bodies? No, that's talking about the sum total of your whole life being devoted to King Jesus. That is the only appropriate response when we have received the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Willing to risk everything and give everything because Jesus is worth it. He is the one who has given infinitely more to you than he has ever asked from you. I mean, have you recognized, like another parable in the Gospels, that there's this incredible treasure. There's this incredible treasure for you. And in that parable, it talks about a man who understands this field. And in that field, there's a buried treasure. And he sells everything to get that treasure to receive that. Let me tell you, that is our life when we receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. The rest of our life are spent at his feet, living for his glory, his way. Again, back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. You wanna know how spiritual you are? How amazed by grace are you? How much has it captured your heart? And again, let me be clear. The point of this passage and parable 
is not that this woman needs to be forgiven a lot and the Pharisee only a little. No, both are in great need of forgiveness. One who spent her life trying to find security and happiness apart from God in prostitution and other things. The other, Simon, thought he could win God's approval by showing how much better he was than everyone else. Both rejected God in their own way and both need to be forgiven. But her advantage is that she realizes it and repents and turns and worships Jesus because of his marvelous grace. But Simon doesn't. So we wrap up this um, series on the parables or the picture and story of grace. Um, one of my favorite videos we've kept, my wife actually captured it, of our son Callahan, he's our, our youngest, when he was about two years old. She has this video, and I, I think about this video all the time because it's such a picture of, of what I think of, of my Christian faith and my walk. Um, it was after some birthday party we'd had, and uh, there were balloons around. And uh, he's standing there in this video with this balloon. And uh, Keith, you have a picture. This is just a snapshot from the picture. And the video is, is quite long. Um, he's there and he is blowing up that balloon. He's just blowing it up, blowing it up. He's just blowing it up. He's like, oh, you know, getting more breath. Like, okay, blowing it up, blowing it up. I don't know if you can tell, but that balloon was blown up a long time ago. And not by him. He's working so hard. He kind of gets frustrated. I think that's how some of you are living your life before the Lord. You're like, Lord, I'm striving and I'm striving, I'm striving. You're just so disappointed. Like the balloon's in your hands, right? It's blown up. And this morning, for some of you, what God wants to look at you and say is like, listen. Just enjoy the balloon. Enjoy my grace and my mercy that I am giving you because you've come to me. All of your striving has exhausted you. It's frustrated you. It's futile. Right? Like, what, what should Cal have done? He should have just picked up that balloon and just been throwing it around and been like, man, my dad's really cool. He blew up this balloon and I'm enjoying it, right? It's not his breath in that balloon, right? It's not your breath that, it's not your breath that gives you grace and mercy. It's the breath of the living God who breathes his life into you and says, listen, I want you to come to me so that you can find shalom, rest and joy and peace, all those things your heart are longing for. But some of you are gonna still keep striving and you're gonna keep trying to blow up that balloon that's already been blown up and the work's already finished, right? Some of you, you're not even willing to pick up the balloon out of shame or guilt, for whatever reason, condemnation. And this morning, I hope that the Spirit of God will convict you of that, that that is pride, that there's a God, a God of the universe who deeply loves you and wants to call you his, who's extending his grace and his mercy to you. And what you have to do is what? Receive it. Receive it.
these last 11 weeks thinking about the kingdom of God and the stories and the way that Jesus has painted them. That this kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace that so assaults my religious heart, that so confronts me in my performance-based, prove yourself, you've earned it kind of thinking. This kingdom for the last 11 weeks, these, these portraits have confronted my sinful thoughts about God's, God's heart towards sinners like me. That this is a new kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. One that is not seen by eyes that he hasn't given sight to. But for those of you who he has given sight to, listen, Jesus wants you to see his kingdom for truly what it is. A kingdom of life, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom that is growing. I love what John Calvin says. He says, listen, the role of the church is to make this invisible kingdom visible. Make it known to a watching world. And listen, when we make the true ethics of the kingdom of God known, let me tell you, it inevitably draws the watching world to it. The people of the city who are on the margins will come near and go, I want what you have. And let me tell you, it's not more angst and more religious activity and more judgmentalism. It's going, I want rest. I want peace. I want shalom. I want healing. I want freedom. And listen, that's what the kingdom of God offers. And so hosts, um, get ready. We're going to take communion. So the way we're going to reflect and respond today is they're going to actually sing a song called Simple Kingdom. And they're going to lead us while we, while we listen. I want you to listen to these words and respond to the Lord today as we grab the elements that represent the great grace and mercy of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your love in Jesus. Thank you seems so trite. Um, but Lord, I pray that you would stir up our affections this morning. You would shape our hearts and our minds and our lives to live more faithfully to you because of the grace we've experienced. And Lord, for those in this room who have not received your grace by faith, Lord, I pray that they would. I pray that they would put down their striving they would put down their shame and all of the reasons that they think they can't come to you and they would receive Jesus this morning and in him find life. And Lord, I pray for us as a community of faith, Lord, that the destructive power of judgmentalism would not have roots in this community. Lord, that the church is a, a place that should look messy because it is a room full of sinners who have been saved by grace. It's a room full of people who are drawing near by faith to receive that grace. And so Lord, help us to see that, help us to feel that and help us to live that out even as we receive communion this morning. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen and amen.